morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Exodus 9, verses 13 to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field to save shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So glad you're here today. If you haven't taken your Bible yet, go over to Exodus chapter 9. We'll be in Exodus 9 and 10. And before we get into that, I want to remind you that we have a really special opportunity this summer for uh, a number of you to go to Israel. Uh, a couple of our staff are going on that trip, and uh, they leave in June. And if you'd like to be a part of that, there is one last informational meeting uh, next Sunday night at 5 o'clock. So don't miss that if you were intending to go but hadn't gotten around to registering or getting more information about that. They have some space available, and it would be great if um, you would be able to go on that trip. Let's pray. Let's get to work on our text this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is a regular reminder of what is truly important, what is really worthy of adoration. And we thank you that your word gives us light and guidance and direction, and we need it. Over the last week, we've encountered various challenges and issues. Some folks come today with completely new burdens on their hearts. And Lord, you have a reason for every person that's in this room today. You have a reason for every person who will hear this message. And I pray today that you, by your Spirit, would speak. I ask you to meet with us and to use your Word to do what it does best, to help us to see ourselves and then to see you and to run to Jesus. And so we come with that expectation and desire, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself asking this question? So what is God trying to tell me? My guess is you've asked that question when there have been hard circumstances or or challenging things that have taken place. And in large part, you're asking the question because, let's be honest, you want the the pain to stop. You want to learn the lesson so the, the pressure can end. Sometimes it's not at all clear as to what God is saying. Sometimes we're in what I have called the dark side of the will of God, meaning we're in this kind of sovereignly designed orbit, but we're coming around the corner and you're on the dark side of God's will where it's cold and fearful. And you know that one day you're going to come around and you're going to see light again, but for the moment you're in the dark side of God's will. And some of you, I bet many of you are in that kind of position today. You wonder what in the world is going on? There's other times when the circumstances of life line up so clearly that you know God is trying to tell you something. I mean, you, you know. There, you hear a message, a particular song, set of circumstances. You're, you're getting the message over time. 
In fact, someone, um, every once in a while, someone will ask me, so how do I know if I'm under the discipline of God? And my answer is, oh, you know. <laughs> you know. Because it doesn't serve you or God well to not know. So I think God makes it very, very clear. But there are also times when, just throughout the course of life, God intends to say things to us. He intends to speak. He intends to speak through a set of circumstances. He intends to speak through His Word. He intends to help us to know that He is God and we are not. You see, one of God's end games is to humble us. In fact, First Peter Chapter 5 and verse 5 says this, that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So these divinely designed difficulties all have a common thread and a singular purpose, and they are essentially to remind us that He is God and we are not. In fact, a fundamental question that these difficulties create is this, so who really is My God, who's in control of life? Who gets to set the rules? Who has to be obeyed? Who is really God? See, these are fundamental questions that happen when the bottom drops out, when difficulties come, when hardships come into our lives. And this is the essential question that we find in Exodus 9 and 10 as it relates to Pharaoh and God and this conflict between who is going to control the destiny of Israel. We're right now in chapter 7 through 12 looking at the God who delivers, and he delivers not only through the plagues, but he also humbles through the plagues. So God has a twofold agenda. He aims to deliver his people by means of the plagues, and by means of the plagues he will humble this arrogant ruler Pharaoh. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has told Pharaoh what he is to do. He has told them he is to let his people go that they may serve him. And Pharaoh refuses to obey the voice of the Lord. And as a result, difficulties and hardships come. And before you're too hard on Pharaoh, before you kind of get up on your spiritual soapbox and say, why don't you just let those people go? Let's just be reminded how often God has told us to do things and we have refused to do it. You see, the aim of the plagues are clearly identified for us in Exodus chapter 9, and it is this. God says, but for this purpose I have raised you up, here's why, to show you my power. That's the goal. So Pharaoh could see God's power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So here we see the essential problem. It is that Pharaoh is exalting himself. Although he's experienced four plagues, he still won't let the people go. And God's goal in all of this is to humble Pharaoh and to make his name known over all the earth. Today I want to dive into these remaining plagues and then make a connection between those plagues and God's dealing with Pharaoh and his dealing with us, and in particular his dealing with us in Christ, and for us to see what we can learn about our relationship with the creator of the universe. And if we can ask ourselves this question, and this is the question I want you asking today, so what is God saying today? I mean, you're here for a reason. In God's providence, this day is not by mistake. You happen to be here We happen to be in Exodus chapter 9 and 10, and the question is why? What what is God trying to say? And I'd like you just to stop and just pause and maybe just say in your heart of hearts, God, whatever you say today, I want to listen. I want to hear. Because God's Word is like a a knife. It cuts through the the self-delusional realities that we create. So, there's a number of plagues. The first that we'll look at is plague number five, the death of the livestock. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Here we see the clear command of God, and this really relates to what the problem is in the first place, this collision between God and Pharaoh. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Let my people go that they may serve me. So there it is. God essentially says to Pharaoh, They're my people. Let them go so that they may serve me problem is that Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. He doesn't believe that they should be let go. He doesn't believe that they should be allowed to serve God. Pharaoh wants these people. They belong to him. They need to serve him. And so therefore, here is the collision of wills. Now, these plagues begin to build on one another. We started with the blood of the Nile, and they've built, and they're going to get worse and worse and worse. 
the, the destruction is going to be more and more widespread. In chapter 9 and verse 2, we get a hint of this in that the language even escalates a bit when Moses refers to the plague that is coming as the hand of the Lord. Before, the magicians had called it the finger of the Lord. Now Moses says the hand of the Lord, which often in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, refers to divine acts of judgment. Verse 2. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, verse 3, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So God is going to bring a plague on them. It's going to be the hand of the Lord. In other words, there's going to be the sense that God is working against Pharaoh and against Egypt. But look at verse 4. Miraculously, he will not only bring this plague, but he will now begin to make a very important distinction, distinction we have seen before, but now will become even more evident. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So God's hand is going to come on Egypt, but there's going to be a clear marker of distinction. He's going to bring a plague on the livestock. Now at first, when you hear a plague against the livestock, it doesn't really feel to us like that big a deal. So you have some cows that die. Oh well. What's the big deal? Well, part of it is you don't really you know, eat chickens, right? I mean, so you don't really understand what, what is it, what's the nature of, of livestock as it relates to the Egyptian life and Egyptian culture. Well, a number of years ago, we had um, a guy who led worship here, a pastor from Kenya. Remember that Sunday? That was one of my most favorite Sundays in all the world. He was dancing up here. What was his name? Joseph. Joseph. Jo- J- Josephat. That's right, Josephat. And um, so we, he and I were talking over lunch, and uh, he um, told me about um, when he asked his wife to marry him that he had to pay a dowry. And this was very interesting to me. And I said, so how much money did you have to give? He said, no, no, we didn't give money. We give cows. I was like, Cows? How many cows did your wife cost you? He said, 13. I was like, 13? So he had a 13-cow wife is what he had. So, so I started asking questions like, you know, do women kind of wear this as a badge? Like, yeah, I'm a 13-cow. How many of your cows? You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I thought, cow, why? I didn't understand this whole thing of cows. And so while traveling in India, Nate and I were traveling around the country, and um, uh, George, who runs a, Uncle George, who runs a ministry over, over there, I started asking him about dowry in um traditions in Indian culture. Well, interestingly, in India, my understanding is, is that the wife has to pay the husband's family dowry. Isn't that interesting, huh? We won't go there. But anyways, so you, so you have the same thing that's happening. And in their case, they also pay with cows. And so we're traveling along the country, and I just rather ignorantly said, why cows? Why not cash? And George said, oh, so you don't understand the value of a cow. Clearly I didn't. And... Um, He said, let me tell you why a cow is valuable. A cow can be used for transportation. Look, out the window, sure enough, there's a guy riding a cow down the road in Delhi. Here he goes. Or or it can be used to haul things. So they hook up a cow to a cart to take their goods. It can also be used for fuel. That I didn't really understand until he pointed to something on the side of the road and said, see, those are cow patties. People burn them and they cook food on them. Gross. All right. But it works, right? Uh, It can also be used for milk. They can reproduce, thereby giving you more and more uh, cattle over the years. Or they also, if they die, can be used for food. So one cow has multiple uses. And so from an economical standpoint, when your livestock die, it's not just that you no longer have a food source. It's that you no longer have a bus. You no longer have a truck. You no longer have fuel. You no longer have potential for milk. And you no longer have the reproduction ability any longer. So an attack on the livestock would have been a devastating moment for the Egyptians, in addition to the fact that now all the Israelites, they have all the cattle. So the whole power base has now shifted in their culture. This would have been an incredible, scary reality for this plague to have hit. Further, there was a god connected to the livestock in the Egyptian worldview called Hathor. She was one of the most important deities. Her, her figure is a, a woman with, um, with horns of a cow and a son in the middle. And she was connected to powers of uh, fertility and also connected to the sky. It was believed that she literally held up the sky with her powers. And so an attack on the livestock would have been an attack not only on the livelihood of the Egyptians, but it also would have been an affront to their entire idea of their worldview. 
Verse 5 to 7 tells us what happens next. And once again, we see the specific control of God over all of these things. It says, and the Lord set a time. Remember that these plagues are not just about bad things that happen. It's about the fact that God controls the timing of even these bad things. The Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, just a little sidebar here. That word all in verse 6 is a little bit of a challenge because if you were to skip ahead and see in chapter 9 and verse 19 as it relates to the hail plague, Moses told Pharaoh that when the hail comes, your people need to bring all of their livestock inside. So why would Moses say, bring your livestock inside with the plague of the hail if all of their livestock have died? Well, the reason is, is there sometimes in the Bible that all contextually is used emotionally, not literally. So it doesn't mean absolutely every um, cattle died in the same way you use all that way as well. Right? I mean, I learned, I've learned this a long time ago as a pastor. When somebody comes to me and says, Mark, all my friends are really torqued about something at church, I know that it means four people are mad. Okay, so I know what all means. It doesn't mean all, like my 40 friends are mad about this. It means four of my loudest friends, all. And it feels like all, but it's not really all. Okay, so that's, that's what the idea is here. That, that there is a sense that this, this plague has affected probably every division of livestock that the Egyptians had. The point is that it's sweeping. He struck the Egyptian cattle while at the same time sparing the Israelites. So therefore, his disobedience now has become very costly. So, you know, the flies can go away, the frogs can die, but when cattle die, that's that's a generational impact. All right, next, boils. Plague number six. This, bo- this, this, this plague now begins to affect peace people personally. It's one thing when you've got flies or gnats or you've got frogs or, or even cattle dying, but now you've got people who are personally in, uh, infected and affected by this plague, and it involves some sort of painful skin infection. Verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. By the way, these kilns were probably the kilns that bricks were made in and so it's back to a reference remember when pharaoh refused to give people straw in the making of their bricks well here god takes that whole issue and turns it on them again and take the soot from the kiln and let moses throw it into the air in the sight of pharaoh it'll become fine dust over the land of egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of egypt We don't know exactly what this was in terms of the physical ailment, but the Hebrew word for boil derives its meaning from another word that means to be hot. And if you've ever had a boil or a sore that got infected, you know the the temperature gets hot. And if you just had one boil, you know how painful it is, let alone if you had your, your body covered with them, this outbreak would have been personally devastating. And as well, with the outbreak, there's a message that sent... Um, through this infirmity, not only to um, the, the people of Egypt about what they did previously with the straw, but also about their ability to exempt themselves, even as leaders, from the effects of this plague. Verse 11 tells us that even the magicians were affected. Verse 11. Magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So before the magicians were able to replicate Moses' plagues, before they were able to say, this is the finger of God, they could never stop it. And now the magicians are actually personally affected by this plague such that they can't even stand before Moses. And so what's happening here is the plague has begun to penetrate the, the arena of power in Egypt. It's begun to affect the leadership. Of course, this will have its ultimate effect when we find the result of the death of the firstborn. There's also religious significance to this plague in that like most ancient Near East cultures, they viewed skin maladies as somehow being indicative of being religiously impure. So you can imagine if all of the Egyptians have these boils and they're viewed as impure, but the Israelites don't have any of them, 
God is sending a clear message, and it would have been humiliating to the Egyptians who saw themselves as a superior class of people to that of the Israelites. So these boils come upon the people. Verse 12 tells us the result, though. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So we have livestock that have died. We have boils that are affecting the people. And now plague number seven, the plague of hail. This is the beginning of the last set of three. Hopefully you'll remember that all the plagues are organized in three sets of threes. And this is the last one in the final set of judgments. And once again, we see the warning that God issues to Pharaoh. It's, it's a lengthy one. Look at verses 13 to 19. Moses delivers God's message. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. There's that, 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 that phrase again. Verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. That's the goal. Pharaoh, you're going to know that there's no God like me. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die before or will die rather when the hail falls on them. So this warning has four things in it that are important to note. First is that God tells Pharaoh that I have been merciful to you in that I could have destroyed you long ago. And this is just something important to note, that God is merciful in all of the things that he chooses not to do that he could do even though he would be right in doing them. So all of the things that we've ever done, we would deserve absolute and right and immediate judgment immediately, but God has been merciful and doesn't give us what we deserve immediately. In the first service, there's a sweet testimony of a little boy who got up and talked about the fact that he needed to be saved from his sin because he stomped up the stairs numerous times when he's mad at his mom and dad. That's really cute. It's really honest and a bit convicting. Because, think of it, if God gave us what we deserve, how many times have you stomped up the stairs? How many times have you gotten angry and upset and violated God's will? Isn't it a great mercy that God doesn't strike us every time we stomp up the stairs? Isn't it? Or are you not only stair stompers, but also liars, right? <laughs> so, so it's a sign of God's mercy, isn't it, friends, that he doesn't give us what we deserve? Think how much mercy God has poured out on us. Think how many times that God has just been gracious to us and been kind to us. And God says, look, I could have brought judgment a long time ago, but I've chosen not to. Secondly, he issues a warning for people to be not outside when the plague comes. So even in judgment, there's mercy. Verse 16 gives us a summary of God's purposes. It is to display His power and proclaim His name. In other words, God's aim in all of this is the same as it has been from the very beginning, that His goal is to make His name known over all the earth. And then we also learn that Pharaoh's problem is our problem. Pharaoh's problem is his pride. Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So at the end of the day, the real issue that's going on here in this conflict between God and Pharaoh is not just about the Israelites or them being slaves or his willingness to let them go. At the end of the day, what's what's really the issue here is Pharaoh's pride and his unwillingness to submit to God's authority. And this, this issue of pride in the heart is something that we all share. So before you look at Pharaoh and you're like, you dummy, why don't you just let him go? I just want to bring you back to all the times that in our pride we've said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask forgiveness first. It's your turn to ask for forgiveness first. I'm not going to keep my cool because I'm really torqued about the way that you're acting, and if you won't stop with me being nice, I'm going to stop by being angry. And as a result, we let this pride thing get larger and larger and larger, and it it begins 
to create self-delusion. Self-delusion that even becomes destructive. So Pharaoh will not obey the Lord. But what's interesting, look at verses 20 and 21. While Pharaoh refuses to obey the Lord, guess what? His people start to. Verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. They, They heard the word from Moses, Hail is coming. And so his servants are like, well, if Pharaoh's not obeying, we should better because we're, we've seen what's happened here. And so they start bringing their their slaves into the houses. And you can imagine how angry this must have met, made Pharaoh here. God has told him to obey, but he won't. His people hear about it. They begin to obey and revere the voice of the Lord. Verse 21, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now there's religious significance here to... What happens with the wind and the storms? There was an Egyptian god named Seth. He was considered the god of the wind, the rain, the storms. And in the ancient Near East mind, it was when, when storms came, when lightning came, it was though the gods were speaking, specifically as though Seth was speaking. And this hail, when it comes down, is, it's as though the sky is falling, as though the gods are coming down. And, and, Seriously, in the spring and summer, when a big storm comes uh, from the west, in, in my house I see it comes over Zionsville, right? And it looks like God's judgment has fallen on Zionsville. That's what it looks like, this, this big, brooding, mean, like the sky is angry is what it looks like. And then when the hail comes, it's destructive. It's destructive beyond measure. So the hail begins to come comes fast and, and, and furious. It comes in a, in a destructive way. Look at verse 25 and 26. Excuse me, verse 24. There was hail. Fire was flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. You ever been out in a hailstorm? You know, it's, 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 it's painful. And if you got big hail, you get your car inside or your Cars are going to look like Swiss cheese, right? I mean, not even that large of hail can make a significant damage. In verse 25 says, Hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Hail struck down every green, every plant of the field, broke every tree of the field, or every plant of the field, every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. So again, God protects His people. Skip ahead to verse 31, you'll see that it comes at a very inopportune time from from the growing season. Verse 31 says, the flax and the barley were struck down. Apparently they were ripe uh, at the time of harvest. And when the hail comes, it destroys the the wheat and the, um, the goods that were ready to be harvested. Verse 32, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down for they were late in coming up. So right at the time when they were harvesting their goods, this terrible hailstorm comes and as a result it seems as if pharaoh gets the message look at verse 27 so pharaoh sent and called moses and aaron and said to them this time i have sinned this is as clear as pharaoh has been to date in our text this time i have sinned the lord is in the right and i and my people are in the wrong boy that sounds really clear doesn't it but it's not going to last He says, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you can stay no, or you shall stay no longer. But you know what this is? Friends, this is the statement of a man who wants the pressure of hard consequences to stop. This is a statement of somebody who's experiencing all of the effects of their disobedience, and and they want the pressure to be relieved. You see, the sign of a broken heart and a broken spirit, the sign of true repentance, is not what the person says when the consequences are coming down on them. The sign of a truly broken person is what they say when the consequences are off. The sign of a truly broken person, a person who's truly repentant, is what they say when the pressure of God's hard providence in their life has been removed. The true sign, if you've really changed, is not what you say or do when the consequences are right in front of your face. The true test is whether you obey God because it's absolutely right regardless of the consequences. 
And that's what we see here with Pharaoh is he just doesn't get it. As soon as the hail stopped, chapter 9 and verse 35, it tells us that Pharaoh's heart again was hardened and he refused to let the people go. So again, once the pressure is relieved, suddenly Pharaoh goes back to his old and familiar patterns. So that is the plague of the hail. Next, plague number eight, plague of locusts. As if the hail wasn't devastating enough, now comes this locust. And what we're, what we're having here is this sense that creation is coming apart at the seams. Wave after wave after wave of cataclysmic ecological events are happening, all meant to awaken Pharaoh to the reality of his disobedience against the Creator God. Chapter 10 and verse 3. Here's a stern warning. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? There's the issue. It's not just that he refuses to let the people go. It's not just that he won't obey the God of the Hebrews. It is that Pharaoh refuses to humble himself before him. And friends, this is the problem with the human race. It is that we refuse to humble ourselves and say, You are God and I am not. This is the essence of what is the barrier to people coming to faith in Christ. That they say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not as bad as as somebody else. I'm not as wicked as what somebody else is. I I haven't made that bad a, a mess of my life until a person comes to the point when they are done with themselves and they say, you are God and I'm not. There is no hope. But when somebody is finally broken and says, I'm done... I am done running, I am done trying, I am done fighting, I'm done resisting, I'm done bucking the system, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, until they say I'm done. There is no hope because humility is the pathway by which God receives people. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He says, you still refuse to humble yourself before me. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. So in other words, if the hail wasn't bad enough, the locusts are going to come and they're going to eat everything else that's still there. In fact, the servants now of Pharaoh are emboldened to speak to him. Look at chapter 10 and verse 7. The servants say to Pharaoh, Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Okay, can we just note for a moment here that you generally don't talk to Pharaoh this way? Okay? This is, this is a good way to lose one's head very quickly, right? You don't talk to Pharaoh. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? You don't say that to Pharaoh unless you're afraid of somebody else who's greater. And that's what's happening. God has shown that He's glorious and that judgment is coming. And my guess is there's some of you who have heard the words from somebody that sounded like this. Don't you understand that God's getting after you? Don't you understand this? Or you may have watched somebody. And in the back of your mind, you've thought, you know what, don't they understand that God's going to do what God's going to do? You are God and I am not. Therefore, what happens is an east wind comes, something that will reappear, by the way, in the Red Sea account in chapter 14. An east wind comes, it brings an inundation of plant-eating locusts, which destroy anything that was left from the plague of the hail. Verse 15, they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that had, that they had left, that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. So this is a devastating plague, but there's also a point to it and it's this, that this probably happened given what we learned previously about the plague of the hail and and when particular products were in um, their harvest season. This this relates to an Egyptian god, or two of them, named Isis and Min. And these two gods were believed to control the crop cycle, and every year there was a big harvest festival. Think of it as the harvest bowl. And what they would do is they would get together and have all sorts of parties and celebrations and rejoice that the crops had, had, had borne good produce and a celebration that the harvest had finally come. And then the hail comes and then the locusts. There is no party in Egypt anymore because the gods of Isis and Min have been decimated. So God, again, is making a point. His point is that He is God and there is no other. 
Verse 16, Pharaoh issues another feigned statement of repentance, saying that he has again made a mistake. He says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So again, he sounds like he's really broken. He sounds like he finally gets it. But yet, despite all the obvious connections between what God is doing and the plagues, between Pharaoh's hardness of heart and the effects on the nation of Egypt, he still once again refuses to relent. Verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. Then we come to the final plague, the plague of darkness. There's, There's no warning here. The plague just happens. And this plague would have gone after one of Egypt's premier gods, the god Ra or Re. He he was viewed as the creator of all forms of life. Since the sun provided light and warmth and growth, it's hard to overestimate the importance of this god in the Egyptian worldview. And therefore, this plague comes and there is utter darkness. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And I love this next phrase, a darkness to be felt. Do you know what a darkness to be felt is? It's the kind of darkness that when you're feeling this darkness, when you're there and it's dark, there's no lights, there's, 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 there's no way for you to, to, uh, to change the environment. A darkness, it makes you feel completely alone and isolated. I don't care how old you are. You go back to like four or five years old when you were scared of the dark. And you have feelings of I'm alone, I'm helpless, and what's that around the corner, Right? And you begin hearing things and seeing things and sort of going through this, 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 this mental freak out thing that's happening. This last summer when my family was out west and we were in the Grand Tetons, I got up, up, up early one morning. The light had already started to come and I wanted to go for a morning walk and, um, just go to Jackson Lake. The beautiful Tetons were there. And so I went all by myself. It was quiet. And I learned from a park ranger, you don't run in the Grand Tetons. You don't run because you could come up on a bear. If you're running and jogging and you meet a bear, well, then you meet Jesus. So I didn't want to, wasn't, wasn't quite ready for that yet. So I was just walking through the woods, took my bear spray, my Bible. I got to the edge of um, Jackson Lake, looking at the Grand Tetons, enjoying the moment, took a picture, read a few verses of Scripture, just standing there meditating. I was there about four minutes. Then I heard a crack in the woods, and I was like, what's that? All right? it's, it's, now it's light out, okay? It isn't even dark. What's that? And then I hear another, what's that? What's that? And pretty soon I'm starting, I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm all alone. I'm about 10 minutes away from my camper. All I have is bear spray. And all these like five-year-olds, oh, well, my mommy feelings are coming, right? <laughs> this is scary. And I'm going to get back. Now, if it had been dark, it would have been even worse trying to walk through the woods in the pitch dark. You know what I'm talking about. A darkness to be felt is you feel all alone. You feel isolated. You feel scared. Suddenly now all the things around you that are... And the environment are beginning to make you incredibly um, nervous. In fact, the Bible describes the effect on the people. Look what it says, verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So notice how lonely it is. Listen to me. If you have a hardened heart today and you have resisted God's hand and there's been judgment and discipline on you, you know exactly what this is talking about. You may have all the light in the world physically, but inside you feel incredibly alone. And the reason that aloneness is there, it is a divine warning. The path that you are on is not a good one. And the darkness that comes is a reminder to the people of Egypt that they are individually going to experience the judgment of God. And we'll see that take its full effect next week as we look at the death of the firstborn. So this darkness comes, and once again, Pharaoh tries to broker a deal. Pharaoh says to Moses, verse 25, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Or, excuse me, that's chapter chapter 8. Chapter 10, in verse 25, Moses said, 
you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Because Pharaoh, verse 24 says, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you, but let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So he tries to, to broker a deal here. Moses refuses. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And so we see that Pharaoh once again goes down this path of refusing to obey the voice of the Lord. And then the text ends in verse 28. Pharaoh gets angry. And by the way, this is where a hardened heart meeting divine resistance, you can't get what you want, God seems to be opposing you, and at the end of the day, all you've got left is your rage. And you know why? Because it's your attempt to still be God. If you can't manage, if you can't manufacture, if you can't manipulate, at the end of the day, all you can do is get mad. And this is what Pharaoh does. He says, get away from me, take care to never see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall surely die. Pharaoh's angry, and the only person in the world that angry that Pharaoh should be upset with is himself, because all he has to do is humble himself and repent. That's all he has to do. And yet it's the one thing he refuses to do. He's this close. But yet he chooses to harden his heart. So here we have the nine plagues. And let me come back to the question I asked you at the very beginning, and that is this. So what is God saying? I was talking with a friend of mine in the church about plagues, idolatry, and everything else, and sent me an email, told me that he went home after our conversation and began listing all of the personal plagues in his life, the moments when God has taken um, individual idols and sort of turned them against him. I'm sure you can think of some as well. Started listing them out. He stopped at 19. I guess if you look back on the history of your own life, you could see them. You could see scenarios of things that got to be too important to you. A a relationship which became consuming, all-consuming, and God ended it. A desire for approval that made you end up hating certain people. A purchase that at the time seemed like such a good investment. That's what you even called it. And you're going to be paying for it for years, not only in money, but emotion. A career that became more important than anything, and now you can't stand it. A a, a longing, a longing to be loved like I've always wanted to be loved. And it just about cost you your marriage, or maybe even did. You see, my friend's comment got me thinking about all the ways that God tries to get our attentions and our attention and all of the ways that he that he tries to wake us up from our self-destructive and self-delusional behavior. I can think of my own life just many times when God has gotten my attention, woken me up and helped me to see the reality of what it is that I'm really pursuing. And so, from Pharaoh to us to the gospel, let me lead you down a path here just to give you some things to think about. Look at nine plagues. What are our takeaways? Here's number one. It's this. College Park, God's supremacy is the ultimate goal of everything. In other words, listen to me. His right and His goal is that He would be known as God and that everyone else is not. And why is that okay? Because there is no one more glorious, more worthy of honor, more worthy of obedience. There is nothing more attractive in all of the universe than God and nothing that is better for us than to love and worship and enjoy Him forever. And therefore, if that is the supreme value of the universe, if that is the ultimate expression of goodness and righteousness, then God is not only right to say He is supreme above all rivals, He is good to remind us that He is supreme above all rivals. So everything in life converges on this singular thought, and that is this, that He is God and we are not. And when difficulties come or hardships come and you're reminded of this truth, oh, that's right, you're God and I'm not, that is a wonderfully glorious reality to you for you to have learned. 
He is supreme above everything. His supremacy is the ultimate goal of everything. He has no rivals because there is no one like him. And therefore, anything that competes for your affection with him is not only sinful, it is treasonous and it is dangerous. It's not only not good because God says it's not good, it's not good because it is shallow. You want to experience life that never has meaning? Never has ultimate satisfaction. You can move from relationship to relationship, job to job, city to city. You can change your appearance. You can change your friends. You can change all sorts of things. You can put substances inside of you to try and push down the the guilt and the discomfort that you feel and the loneliness. But at the end of the day, the thing that is missing in your soul is not the next thrill. It is the fact that the ultimate thrill is not in its right place. That God is God and you are not. And His supremacy is the ultimate thing that is satisfying. And this is the message that Pharaoh needs to hear. This is the message we need to hear. Because every single day of the week, you will be lured into giving supremacy to other things. Secondly, goodness and hardship are meant to point us to him. So it's what what God says to Pharaoh. I, I could have laid my hand on you before and completely wiped you off the face of the earth, but I've chosen not to. In other words, God has been merciful to Pharaoh. And I want you to think of all the ways that he's been merciful to you. The Apostle Paul says that his goodness was meant to lead us to repentance. See, all the things that God's blessed you with, all the things that He's given you, these good gifts are meant to be conduits to make much of Him, not meant to be idols that somehow suddenly consume your heart. The good things of God are meant to remind us that without Him we have nothing. So goodness is meant to point us to Him. But as well, hardship is. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says that he felt at one point in time of his life that he had a sentence of death on him. But he said this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the beautiful thing, that even hardship can have the same result in that we realize, God, even in the midst of you taking these things away or making life difficult or things aren't coming together like I hoped they were, oh, this is so that I can remember that you are God and I am not. And this is the lesson I need to learn for all of my life and the thing i will sing about for all of eternity that you are god and i am not in other words everything whether it's blessings or bruisings they're meant to turn us toward god and the message to pharaoh is the same message to us know that he is god some of you are here today and you are just downright angry in your heart. And the reason you're angry is because you want control and God won't give it to you because he's God and you're not. And today you need to release that and say, I give up. You are in control and I'm not because you're God and I'm just me. This is the lesson that Pharaoh needs to learn. This is the Pharaoh lesson that we need to learn. And here's the third thing. And oh, I pray that some of you will move one step closer to this today, that brokenness is the starting point. Throughout the plagues, as we've watched Pharaoh become more and more isolated, more and more stubborn, you almost want to beg him to lay aside his pride. If you've ever been around a, a proud man or a woman, it's almost like you want to just beg them, please, 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 won't you just stop? Won't you just stop exalting yourself? Won't you just stop resisting? When will you come to a point when you say, I'm done? Brokenness is hard because it's frightening in that it means you give up having control of your life. And yet at the same time, the gospel enters into this equation and when you come to an end of yourself, that's when Jesus comes in and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The crazy thing about the gospel is those who resist it, those who fight it, those who think they can do it their own way are never let into the kingdom, but those who are broken and say, you are God, I'm not, I'm a horrible, awful sinner, I need you to change me from the inside out and I can't do it on my own. That is the person who Jesus says becomes like a little child and those are the people who enter the kingdom. And then when you receive this gift of faith, and maybe today could be the very first time that you receive this gift and you become a new creation. Maybe today the reason that you're here is because you need to give up trying to manage and manufacture your own life. And today say, Lord, I am done. I'm done. I'm done. Because I have become undone. And I need you, Jesus, to fill me because you've broken me. 
And if you've received Christ, that means that for the rest of your life, you live in the beautiful reality of the fact that he is God and you are not. I think I can, I can confidently say that everyone here, God is trying to get every single one of our attentions. And maybe today you're finally listening. Oh, I, I hope that maybe today God finally has your attention. And maybe today would be a day when you say, in faith, Jesus, I'm done. I'm coming to you. Or maybe you've received him and said, Lord, I have drifted and you've made it hard and I'm so grateful and I am coming back to this place where I say, you are God and I am not. You see, what happens in the gospel is this, that God delivers his people through the judgment poured out on his son. He plagues his own son, but he delivers sinners by humbling them so that they come to an end of themselves such that they can then run and turn to Christ. And that's what we all must wrestle with. What is God saying? Would you bow your heads with me? Before I close, I wonder today if perhaps you just need to take a moment and tell God in response to what he's saying to you through his word how you need to respond. For some of you, it may be today that you say, Lord, I am done, so done with me, and I, I, need, I need Christ. I need him to, I need to receive him. I need him to fill me. I need to become a child of God. It may be that after a hard week or a hard month or a hard life, today you would just say, Lord, you are God and I am not. And glory in this beautiful but hard truth that he is God and you are not. Some of you today are angry. You're angry at God. You're angry at the world. And the reason is, is because you want to be God. And today, perhaps you just need to say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done trying to be God. We thank you, Lord, that when we seek you, we find you. And when we sing and say things like, Spirit of the living God, fall on us. You hear us, you answer us, and you fill us. And so believing that that is a work that you've promised to do, we receive it in faith today. Thank you that you are God and we are not. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards if you need someone to pray with you, and I imagine some of you do. They are here to bless you, encourage you, and help you today, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.